0: This is a -A QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Well, the way we live changed dramatically in early 2020. Many lives and livelihoods have been lost and people's plans vaporised. And in the midst of this global pandemic, several teams of scientists at QAMR Berghofer fast-tracked urgent research into this highly infectious disease. Hi, I'm Claire Blake and you're listening to Body Lab. Professor Andreas Serbia is the head of the Inflammation Biology Laboratory at QRMR Berghofer, a virologist who studies tropical medicine and infectious diseases. Initially studied biochemistry at Oxford, but his research has influenced federal legislation. He has changed the way we treat Ross River virus. He works on emerging infectious diseases like Ebola and Zika virus and now COVID-19. Thanks for joining us, Andres. Hi. Over the recent years, we've had SARS and MERS have appeared, but nothing really compared to COVID-19, Andreas, Was this a surprise?
1: Yes, uh, clearly nobody uh, can predict such things, so many people, including myself, are very surprised. Um, perhaps a better question is, that: should we be surprised? Uh, we've had outbreaks of Ebola, Chikungunya, Nipah, West Nile, Zika, SARS-1. These things seem to be a fairly regular occurrence on the planet. Uh, There's more humans on the planet. We travel a lot further. We destroy the ecosystem. We have climate change. It's perhaps not surprising that these sort of things are likely to appear.
0: So the surprise is that it didn't happen before this.
1: Well, I think it has happened to a small extent for all those virus epidemics that I mentioned before. Um, Perhaps not as uh, severe as... uh, COVID-19 is, but uh, certainly uh, these kind of epidemics are certainly uh, appearing on a regular basis.
0: When I say COVID-19, that's not the name of the virus. No,
1: it's slightly confusing. The virus is called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. That's the name of the virus, SARS-CoV-2. The disease is called Coronavirus Disease 2. 2019, in other words, uh, COVID-19. So yeah slightly weird nomenclature. It's taken us a little while to work out what all that means.
0: Can we say for sure now exactly where it came from?
1: We can never really be sure about these things. Uh, I think most of the uh, folks now believe that um, this virus came from a wet market where wild animals, wild-caught animals, are caged and stressed and treated really very badly and probably end up uh, with lots of virus infections um, emerging because they're in very bad conditions. And uh, in these markets, all kinds of uh, wild animals are sold, and we probably now think uh, bats are a likely origin for this uh, virus. Perhaps also uh, pangolins, where there's a, a reasonably large illegal trade in these animals. But the two closest viruses to the one that is infecting humans are found in bats and pangolins.
0: Are any of those viruses the same as this in that some people have no symptoms and yet some people get horrific symptoms?
1: The notion that a virus will always give you the same disease outcome is not true for most viruses. I mean, let's take Ross River. About half the people who get infected with Ross River have no idea they're infected. Whereas other people get uh, quite sick, although, of course, nobody dies of Ross River. So this large range of uh, symptoms all the way from no symptoms all the way to dying is, is not entirely unusual. And It depends on a number of factors. Uh, For coronavirus, we think uh, the dose of virus that you end up with is really a critical factor here. If you get a large dose of virus, then you're going to get sicker than if you get a small dose of virus. Basically, your immune system is overwhelmed with a vast amount of virus. It's very difficult for you to uh, avoid being severely sick or dying. And of course, that's why face masks are so useful. They may not prevent you from being infected, but they will reduce the dose and therefore hopefully reduce your chance of getting severe disease. And other factors also come into play like um, comorbidities, other things that you might be suffering from like hypertension or some form of immunosuppression or heart disease and perhaps obesity. And these make a big difference to how likely it is that your immune system can fight off this virus without you becoming too critically ill.
0: What happens in the body when somebody is infected?
1: Uh, We think that uh, the virus comes in uh, through the nose, the mouth, uh, starts replicating up there in the upper respiratory tract and then travels down into the lungs, right down at the bottom of the lungs and causes a huge so-called cytokine storm, which on one level is trying to stop you from dying. and On the other side, it causes a massive inflammatory response and then you get something called acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, which is what most people ultimately die of.
0: You talked about the dose being relative to the symptoms before. but What about the people who get infected and then they're okay for a week or so and then deteriorate rapidly?
1: That's a slightly strange story and I'm not really sure I have a good answer for that because I don't really believe that's... Uh, the experience that the clinicians are describing in general terms you are infected after about two to five days you are infectious in other words you can then after that period of time as little as two days you can then pass on the virus to the next person around about day 10 post-infection a serious illness usually starts around about then and and death is then about day fifteen, day thirty post infection. So that's the kind of time frame that uh, clinicians have been describing.
0: Some people are left with long term effects, and is that common or uncommon for a respiratory response, a respiratory disease?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. Um, so let's just break that down a little bit. I mean, there's one thing that's for sure is that uh, people who have normally recovered from COVID nineteen spend a long time before they're really well. In the US, these guys are being called the long haulers. It's not terribly uncommon for a severe viral illness to cause long-term effects. I mean, it takes a long time for you to really feel, you know, 100% again. Exactly what is going on there is not entirely clear. I mean, people talk about post-viral syndrome and other issues uh, but there may actually be some really serious sequelae there may be some actual damage some actual uh, lung damage that doesn't recover some other damage in the body that doesn't recover well so I think we're not quite clear at this stage to what extent those long-term sequelae are permanent or how long they will actually last.
0: What does a sequelae on? Under-
1: a sequelae is a consequence of the disease. So a good example for instance is a sequelae of Ross River virus which we know well in us in, in Queensland is that you get very depressed. You know, you can't work, your joints hurt and some people just end up being, you know, really quite depressed for Quite some period of time. So depression is therefore a sequelae of of the Ross River. You know, I don't have the disease anymore, but you've developed a sort of. depressive uh, illness afterwards.
0: As if you didn't have enough with Ross River fever. That seems Exactly.
1: I mean, but that's not uncommon. Uh, You know, people with uh, severe injuries, they end up with quite... uh, get to be quite sick Mm. afterwards and mentally ill. So that's not a difficult concept to understand. But um, for coronavirus, we don't really know all of it at this stage, but there's probably going to be more and more research into this and uh, I think that's an area where a lot of people would like to get some answers. What are the uh, long-term sequelae of coronavirus and uh, what do we need to do for those patients in particular?
0: That's going to be one of the new words that we've learnt. We've learnt PPE, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) 3 and sequelae will be I guess a little further down the track. There are suggestions that the rates of Parkinson's disease may go up in the coming years, which also happened after the Spanish flu outbreak. How did these viruses cause Parkinson's? Right.
1: So This is a very recent study, and I, I'm not really a, a neurologist, so I can't really make uh, good comments on on exactly whether that uh, study is now you know well accepted uh, internationally. This is one of the sequelae, of course, is uh, potentially Parkinson's disease, and that's something we need to sort of map out to see whether that's true in in reality. After the Spanish flu, um, there was also a report that Parkinson's disease went up, but there's probably going to be all kinds of other sequelae that um, are going to go up as well after this. Um, there is some notion in the literature that... Uh, there will be other problems, brain problems. Brain infection has been thought possible, and uh, some people even think that the acute respiratory disease syndrome actually has a sort of neuropathic uh, origin, in part. In other words, that uh, there are sort of other neurological complications that are part of the sort of long-term spectrum of uh, sequelae. Again, a lot of work needs to be done to really map all that stuff out and uh, really clarify uh, what's cause and effect.
0: I hope the people who think wearing a mask is an invasion of the personal liberties are listening to this, Andreas.
1: Well, um, I mean, the the really telling data is that the people that tend to die quickly are doctors and they're exposed and nurses who, who are exposed to high doses of the virus and that's what causes in many cases, the reason why they have a, a, a lethal outcome. So wearing a mask could save your life.
0: There's been some debate also around whether or not the virus can be spread via aerosol transmission. Is the jury out on that?
1: Right, this is a very large debate and uh, you know this is a, a new field for me as it is for many people and uh, we're not entirely clear how important aerosols are are in this epidemic in other words if you got rid of aerosol transmission completely would we still have the same epidemic not clear is it possible to infect somebody with aerosols extremely likely to be true there are things called aerosol generating procedures in hospitals which are considered to be sort of high risk procedures uh, and incubation and ventilators and stuff are likely to be producing aerosols which are likely to be a risk. Then there's um, a recent phrase that's come up called aerosol generating behaviours. I suppose the the archetypal concept there is uh, people singing in a choir and infecting each other because singing uh, produces aerosols. So we're not quite there yet. The jury is still out on exactly how important aerosol transmission actually is in the grand scheme of things. It most probably can occur and in certain settings it's probably a much higher risk than others.
0: We should clarify aerosols too. So that's when you breathe out.
1: Oh God, aerosol, defining aerosols is a real problem. Masks really prevent droplet transmission. Staying 1.5 metres away from somebody also helps you not get a droplet because droplets are bigger water particles that fall to the ground and and masks will also prevent uh, them getting into your mouth and nose. Aerosols are generally... Felt to be things that are suspended in the air, but they can be a vast range of different sizes, so it's quite difficult to know what uh, you know how to define them. But essentially, what we mean by that is airborne transmission they float around, uh, they're small enough and light enough that they can be blown around in the wind, sort of thing, rather than falling to the ground.
0: When we talk about the new language that we're learning, aerosols, another one of them. We've got PPE and also PC3 lab. When people talk to us about us having the virus or people working with a virus, why do you need a PC3 lab and what is it?
1: The international uh, definition of PC3 is actually a bit easier to understand. It's called biosafety level three. People working inside a PC3 facility undertake a huge amount of training and protocols and procedures, engineering and behaviour to make absolutely as sure as we humanly can be sure that they are not going to be infected by the virus they're working on. Now when you're working inside one of these laboratories you're growing up you know very large amounts of virus in vitro, much larger amounts of virus than you would encounter out there in the real world because we're trying to do experiments on these viruses so we need a lot of them. Of course, that increases the risk and therefore we have these really quite extensive procedures. I mean, our facility here is state-of-the-art. We've spent $20 million uh, building it initially and we spend millions a year uh, refurbishing it and making it better and ensuring that uh, the risk to the people working in there and, of course, people outside is kept to an absolute uh, minimum.
0: What are you focusing on?
1: With this PC3, we decided uh, back uh, early 2020 when it became clear this was going to be a pretty serious problem, uh, we decided to refurbish another uh, PC3 facility that we have. We work in there with other diseases like chikungunya and HIV and malaria and dengue. So we decided to take one of those suites that we have in there and completely refurbish it for SARS-CoV-2 work. That's taken us a few months because there's an awful lot of paperwork and equipment and other regulatory issues you have to go through. And and that's been a huge undertaking for us. And and we've been very grateful for uh, support from people who've donated money to QIMR like Clive Burkhoffer and Lynn Brazel. And uh, who've made that possible because this is not a cheap uh, endeavour uh, by any stretch of the imagination. In one day I spent $50,000 just buying essential new equipment that we needed to be able to do this kind of research in a very safe environment.
0: We've got different arms of research going on here. What's yours?
1: So my research at the moment, we're actually in the process of signing a whole series of deals with a range of biotech companies, pharmaceutical industry and uh, little groups around Australia and internationally who have come up with uh, their own interesting ideas for intervening with this uh, disease. there? are vaccine manufacturers, diagnostic people, people who are trying to get rid of uh, contamination of aerosols, people interested in producing better disinfectants, uh, trying very hard to allow this facility to get research up and rolling in Australia so that we have a a sort of hub where these companies can come and test out their ideas. We've also got a series of academic collaborators who also have some really interesting ideas that we're testing out to see whether or not we can show that what they're trying to do is actually working and so they can go off and raise more money and then come back and perhaps get to the next stage of development.
0: This is quite unique. All the scientists all over the world are collaborating at the moment and it's an urgent need. Are you feeling the weight of all that pressure
1: I would have to say that, uh, you know, we've got now, what, a a million dead people from this disease. I I think in my professional career, I've never been as stressed as I have um, over these last few months trying to get this up and rolling. You know, there are obviously constant problems with assuring uh, funding. For me, it's been a very steep learning curve.
0: What's your feeling about a successful vaccine?
1: Yeah, look, this has been a big debate. What what does a perfect vaccine look like and uh, what does a reality look like and I think we can perhaps ask uh, what, is a, what's a, what does a successful vaccine actually mean one might be reasonably comfortable in saying that a, a vaccine will protect you from dying, a vaccine might even protect you from being seriously ill, that's perhaps likely from what we see but then the next question is would a vaccine protect you from being infected and passing on the infection to somebody else. And that's where we're not really quite that clear. I mean, this virus can enter your uh, respiratory tract and two days later you have enough virus to pass it on to somebody else. Is that enough time for a vaccine to really kick in and uh, get rid of that virus before it spreads to the next person? Um, Lots of people think that that may not be feasible. So in other words, the vaccine will perhaps not be able to prevent you from being infected and from spreading the virus and we'll just have to wait and see.
0: How long does it take the immune system to respond?
1: Well that's a difficult question because it depends exactly on the disease and right. the virus and the load and so it's not exactly an easy answer To and it also depends where the virus is replicating so for coronavirus it's replicating in the sort of nose and upper respiratory tract where it's actually quite hard for the immune system to get at it so the immune system will be pretty active in stopping your lungs from you know getting filled up with virus that's probably likely but is it going to stop that upper respiratory tract infection and that's really quite difficult uh, place for an immune system to get uh get working. And we don't really know that answer yet. Uh, There's hope there but I think uh, several people have uh, cast doubt on the notion that we can make a vaccine these days that would actually protect you from infection in in the upper respiratory tract and and nasal turbinate areas.
0: Your nose and mouth aren't right in the middle of your blood Well they're
1: outside your body. Mm. Pretty hard to attack things that are outside your body. I mean they're right on the surface, on the mucosal surface, so maybe it can uh, do something there but in the past it's it's been very hard to produce good immune responses at mucosal mm-hmm. surfaces I mean, we know that from past experience with a whole range of different vaccines so yeah, are we likely to achieve that with the current batch of vaccines don't know i mean there's going to be improvements i mean the first vaccine off the rank probably won't be the best one so um Over the years, these vaccines are likely to be improved and uh, maybe eventually we'll get there.
0: So clever to evolve to enter a space where the immune system isn't at its peak. Do you find the more you study the viruses that you get an incredible respect? This is a thing that can't even survive outside the human body yet. It just can wreak havoc.
1: Yeah, well, that's why I'm a scientist. I'm always amazed and astounded by how nature operates and works, and it's my job to try and shine a little bit of light onto that uh, when I can. But yeah, look, the way in which these things operate, it's uh, astounding really how little we know as a human race in terms of what, uh, how these things work and how long it takes us to actually work out what is going on. It's not, uh, these are hard sums. These really are hard sums. They're not easy to quickly understand and it takes an awful lot of effort by an awful lot of people to get some kind of clarity of thought. And indeed, during that process, we get continuously surprised about what the natural world can and can't do.
0: Very clever, but could that have been made in the laboratory? Is there any truth to that?
1: Right. This has been presented to lots of different agencies around the world. and The sequences of this virus is publicly available. All the scientists in the world can look at it and look. Essentially, there's no evidence in there that somebody has been tinkering around with the virus to make it into the, what we have today. Um, we have bat viruses, pangolin virus, that look uh, very similar to this. And the whole series of changes from them to the current one looks just like natural evolution that we know and understand to, to some extent. So the evidence that this is, was artificially constructed just isn't there. And we've had you know millions of eyes on these sequences and nobody's... Uh, Come up with any cogent uh, evidence really that these were man made or constructed in some laboratory and under nefarious purposes. So that's just extremely unlikely and really a bit of magical thinking in some sense that we're actually good enough as scientists, to be able to do this stuff. You know, we, we, it takes us so long to work out what one amino acid change in a virus actually does or means or what the implications for that in the human disease population actually are. And, you know, you, there's, um, in my field, uh, one mutation is... Um, uh, 300 uh, publications on one mutation. We still don't, still don't really know what it does. So, it, so this notion that there's some really brainy people somewhere that know exactly how to do this and create the sort of perfect monster virus is just magical thinking.
0: Thank goodness we can put that conspiracy theory <laughs> to bed, Andreas. <laughs> that yep. is fantastic. If you'd like some more information about Professor Andreas Serbia's work and any of our research, go to Thanks so much, Andreas. That was great.
1: Thank you.